G'day. We hope you're enjoying our podcast. Producing a podcast is costly, both time and money. If you'd like to show your support and offer a one-off payment, even the price of a coffee or a beer, that'd be greatly appreciated and would go a long way to support us. If you'd like to leave a donation, head to the show notes of this episode and click on the ACAST supporter link. Be sure to leave your message of support too. Thanks again. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Bean and Valley Road contains coarse language and talks about suicide and mental health. If you are sensitive to these issues, take care listening to this episode. If you need help or you're affected by such issues, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. If you're in serious danger, call triple zero or 911 or whatever the emergency number is in your area. Discretion is advised. Hey guys, uh, Jamie Poltz here from uh, Beanham Valley Road and 610 Media, aka J Maybe Poltzy. I uh, just want to give a quick shout out to Jared Bell from Soda Pop Agency. He created our new 610 Media logo and it is red hot. So if you are interested in getting any graphic design work done, head to Soda Pop Agency, um, their Facebook or their website. It, he does amazing stuff. And not only did he create our logo, but he also created my wife's logo a few years ago. And it's yeah, it's we, we still get a lot of comments about that. So... Thanks, Jared, and yeah, check him out. Tear it down. This is our first plog. It's a podcast blog. So there we get the name plog. Anyway, we realise that some people don't read blogs, uh, so we are going to do some of our blogs as plogs. Now this plog and blog is going to be a little different. We are going to discuss mental health. How does this relate to Kira and her unsolved murder? Well, it has a lot to do with it. And it's clear to see from what we have heard so far, leading up to Kira's death, her life was spiraling out of control. Her marriage had ended. She entered into what appears to be a violent and abusive relationship. She lost her kids as a result of that. And you heard Tamika say, on that fateful night, Kira snapped and just wasn't herself. She was hysterical and angry. We know Kira was prescribed antidepressants, and we know she suffered depression. And if we're speaking about Alison, well, after Kira's death, Alison's mental health was far from good. Alison became a hermit. She lost who she was. Her universe collapsed that day. And you heard Alison say she would have died four and a half years ago if it wasn't for her grandkids. What sparked all of this, though, is someone close to me is going through a crippling episode of anxiety and depression. 
it's tough to watch someone go through something like that. And after all the research, after all the developments, all the exposure mental health has had, there is still a stigma surrounding it. And if you're one of those people who thinks anxiety and depression are not real, open your eyes and pull your head in. Suicide is one of the largest killers worldwide. According to the World Health Organization, a staggering 1 million people die from suicide each year. That's approximately one suicide every 40 seconds, globally. This can't be a mood, or just something someone can simply snap out of. It's time we address it and remove the stigma. It's time we tear it down. This is a conversation we need to have. We're going to do our part in removing the stigma by telling you our stories and battles with mental health. We're going to put it all on the table. We're going to be vulnerable for a minute here. So please listen, read the blog or listen to this, whatever you got to do, but I hope it helps someone out there. When I was 16 or 17, I remember hanging out with a mate. We were smoking diaries at the back of 7-Eleven, as teenagers do. And for our international friends, diaries are cigarettes. And we were talking and all of a sudden my mate said, don't you just want to die? And although I've been around mental health before, this was the first time I was face to face with it and its effect. Like it knocked me, hearing my mate tell me that he wanted to die. Like we were 16. It just didn't make sense to me and it didn't get better after that. This mate began self-harming and grade 12 was rough for him and it was rough for me too because I was his mate. And so up until that point, I was young and excited about the future and I told my mate that night I didn't want to die, that I was looking forward to spending the rest of my life, you know, doing things I liked and hopefully meeting a girl and having kids and having a good job and all that sort of stuff. And it was like night and day. All of a sudden, I was changed. I was now aware of what mental health can do. I was changed. You hear all about this stuff, but it's different when it's your friend. For the next few years, this impacted me as I remained close to my mate. Just everyday things like going to parties, hanging with a group of friends, meeting new people, they were all challenging. And I had to navigate that as a young person, trying to live life, but also be conscious of my friend's mental health. I finished school and worked for a few years, before heading to Canada, well, Banff, in 2006. I lived there with my brother, Joel. And for those that don't know, Banff is a tourist party town that attracts people from all over the world to live, work and play. It was there that my own long-term relationship began with mental health. I was about 19 or 20 at this stage, I think. So it started as the best year of my life and ended as the worst. I was drinking plenty, sleeping minimal and had some heartbreak. It all came to an abrupt halt. I started having this feeling. I couldn't put my finger on it, but I remember saying to myself, I'm going insane. And that in itself was fucking terrifying. I remember one time I couldn't stop shaking. I physically shook all night, like I was freezing cold. But it was just anxiety. I didn't know it at the time, but it's incredibly isolating. The feeling that you are losing your grip on reality is something I wouldn't wish on anyone. This is when you learn to act. You have to act all the time, just to get by. For example, I worked as a cook in a fairly well-known hotel. I was cooking one morning, and a customer asked me where I was from. I told them, Sunshine Coast Australia. The funny thing was, it was just a rehearsed answer. I had programmed myself to answer questions and to concentrate on the conversation with people, and I remembered 
when someone asks you where you're from, you have to say this because I was just so consumed in my own head. Like if I didn't concentrate and remember those answers, I'd be a million miles away but stuck in my own head. And this may seem small and trivial to people, but this was a major red flag to me. Like even in my depressed state, I knew I wasn't quite right and I just felt so detached from my own self. I had to remember where I was from. It just didn't come naturally to me. So anyway, at that point, I thought to myself, I'm completely and utterly bonkers. My acting only got me so far. I had started as a kitchen hand and been given the chance to become a cook and learn from some of the best. And this was when everything was peachy. So one co-worker said to me, you used to care, you used to try. Now you don't give a shit. And I couldn't agree more. In hindsight, I should have been honest and upfront and said, hey, listen, I'm having some problems here. I'm, I don't know what's going on, but I'm flipping out. Anyway, I just hold it in and look like a weirdo. You know, like I, I could have reached out, but instead you just isolate yourself more and you get worse. And that's something that you see with all people with mental health. They just like to recluse and hide. You know, I would use excuses like, oh, I'm tired or I'm homesick, you know, just to try and validate my odd behaviour. And the truth would have been much more helpful to everyone, especially me. So the panic began to rise. I was a zombie, a terrified zombie. The thing with depression and anxiety is you feel like you have it worse, the worst ever. So while other people may get cured, you are shit out of luck. I felt more and more like my world was caving in and I had no idea what was happening to me. I didn't know because I didn't reach out or go to the doctor. If I knew what I know now, I would have screamed it from the rooftops. <laughs> I wouldn't have spent the next 10 years with anxiety in my back pocket. I would have done everything possible to get control over it. Or at least understand it. And there was no amount of money I wouldn't have paid for just a moment of relief. The trouble is, I didn't have any money. Hmm. You've heard people say they've been bedridden while they had anxiety or depression. I was lucky to never have that. I did, however, understand that. Because you have all your motivation and zapped from you. You have all the motivation zapped from you. And all I wanted to do is nothing. But nothing is the worst thing you can do. To be at home, alone, doing nothing but stuck with your thoughts... I played a game of footy one day with some friends. It was an autumn and it was cold in Banff. I was running around so much I was absolutely buggered. For the first time in months, I had actually had a moment of relief. I completely forgot about my depression. I was quickly reminded though and thought, oh, that's right, FTW. At this point, I told a few people what was going on. I reached out in a way, I guess. I formulated a theory for my mental state. I was living in Banff, which is surrounded by mountains. It made perfect rational sense to me that all this was a result of being closed in by mountains. You can't see beyond them. I needed to go home to see the ocean and the vast open space. And that would cure me. Makes perfect sense. So I headed home after 12 months away. The relief, however, was momentary. When I arrived home, it was great to see friends and family, but that big old black dark cloud followed me back. Damn. The next few years were tainted by anxiety. I still didn't go to a doctor, so I was never diagnosed. Things like surfing, which I loved, would be almost not enjoyable because my anxiety manifested itself to be everywhere. I was now petrified of sharks and deep water, even though I'm a strong swimmer. 
Seriously. Anxiety is more than nerves or stress. I felt like I was in the gas chamber and they were closing the door. That kind of nervous. That level. It controls your life and dampens everything. My anxiety became centred on health issues, as it does a lot of people. I was fit and healthy, but I was dying from everything. I also experienced what I now know were panic attacks. Going to the dentist was hard because I thought I might have a reaction to the anaesthetic. <laughs> uh, I also bought a blood pressure monitor, so I could keep checking I don't have high blood pressure. You get the point. In this time, I did catch a break, however. I met Renee, who would later become my wife. She knew all about my battles and was very supportive. And I'm sure it wasn't easy dealing with me. So thanks. I will never be able to repay you for all the times you brought me back to earth. I also reconnected with my faith. Although I'm not an every Sunday churchgoer, I have my beliefs and that helps. Around this time, I also decided to join the police. Because that's a great, easygoing job for someone who hooks themselves up to a blood pressure monitor just to check. <laughs> anyway, when I look back now, I'm proud of what I've accomplished. You know, despite having pretty bad anxiety, I still put myself out there. I joined the police. I completed the academy. I was told I was actually a good cop. But after several years of policing, I was burning out. You know, it's a stressful job, and especially if you take it home. So I left. It did help that I had a full-time job waiting for me. From, you know, my family business, they make soap in the factory. So that helped. I had a full-time job just to go straight to. And I went from fighting crime to fighting grime. Uh, I wish I could take credit for that one, but my senior sergeant at the time, Steve McWright, he came up with that little ripper. The last time I wore the blue uniform was for a sombre occasion, a funeral of a fallen comrade. In November 2016, Dale, a fellow officer and mate, finished his shift, completed his paperwork and the usual end of shift procedures as he always did. Dale said goodbye and went home. When he got home, he called Triple Zero and told them he was going to end his life. He did. The police and paramedics arrived, but it was too late. It was a tragedy of unbelievable measure. The guilt and sadness was felt by all who knew him. A reminder to have that conversation before it's too late. And those poor police who work daily alongside Dale, they don't get paid enough to attend a colleague's suicide. I remember hearing the senior sergeant who arrived on scene try to stop other officers going in to see Dale because you can't ever unsee. Rest in peace, Dale. I am much better now. I slowly learnt ways of dealing with anxiety. Renee and I now have two boys and they just rock my world. They are a constant reminder to live in the moment. I still have anxiety to this day, but it's way easier to live with. I've since seen a doctor and had treatment. I don't worry. <laughs> don't worry, I still get down and dirty with the irrational thinking from time to time. I liken it to a washing machine. Your clothes are your thoughts and anxiety spins the shit out of them. Anxiety can hit you when you thought you had a grip on it. Life happens. In November 2018, my wife and I had a stillborn, a 36-hour labour and all. It was gruelling and it completely tore our hearts out. I have a newfound admiration for midwives and doctors who experience these tragedies on a regular basis. We are thankful we had family and friends who helped us through this, and we will always remember you and love you, Gabrielle. Despite all of this, it doesn't define me. It's just an aspect. I still get on with it. I have hobbies, I have interests. You know, I've completed an apprenticeship, I've lived overseas, I got married, joined the police, had kids, you know, like I'm uh, not trying to blow my own skirt up, but I'm just getting out there, the fact that I can be pretty bugged down by uh, mental health, but I can still get on with it, I can still accomplish things, and it doesn't have to, you know, you don't have to be smearing pill on the walls of a padded cell to have a mental health issue, you can be anybody 
and silently suffering, you know. So, uh, you know, I wrote a quote 10 years ago when I was in the thick of it and it was something like this. An anxious person is a strong person. Their burden is heavy and it never leaves them. You know, it's so true too because everything they do, they carry that burden around. You know, they go to the, for a surf, they go for a swim, they go to the dentist, they go shopping, whatever it is. If someone's anxious, that all weighs them down. You know, it adds adds to the experience and it just it dampens it and it takes courage and strength just to get through each day. Therefore, an anxious person is a strong person. So I want to encourage anyone who is going through something like this, ask for help. Don't wait 10 years. We all fight battles. No matter your beliefs, if you think we were created, evolved or spawned from aliens, I think we can all agree that life is nothing short of a miracle. Let's look out for each other. And it's only stigma if we let it be. Let's tear it down. And now Tom's going to share his story with you. And remember, guys, if you need help, please contact someone like Lifeline. You can also reach out to your psychologist or psychiatrist or a neighbor, friend. There's plenty of support out there. But if you are touched by mental health or you are affected by it in any way, please look after yourself. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's uh, Tom Daunt here from Ben and Valley Road and 610 Media. Thanks so much for engaging with everything that we've been doing so far. It's been really heartwarming. We really appreciate the support and, you know, people's kindness in their words of, of what we're trying to achieve here. It's been really, really good. Um, just before we get started on my little plug here, I just wanted to remind everybody that if you do like what we're doing, um, please jump on and subscribe, rate and review our work. It helps us, well, it, it helps us in a number of ways. Firstly, it helps us um, with feedback and helps us realise things that we need to do better or realise things that um, we're doing well. So to keep doing them and to keep bringing you guys the content that um, that you want. And also, um, it also helps from a um, subscriber point of view because it means that this story gets more exposure so um, this is for the greater good we're not doing this for the uh, Facebook likes we're doing this for a greater purpose so if you want to contribute to that the best way that you can do it is to subscribe rate and review so thanks so much Um, today what I'm going to do is read you out a little blog that I wrote um, about mental health Um, you heard from Jamie before um, a little bit about his story Mine is same, same, but different. Um, so I hope you like it. It's pretty raw. It's pretty, um, you know, pretty out there. So, well, it's not really that out there. It's it's pretty normal, I'd say, actually. <laughs> um, but what I'll do is I'll, I'll read it out and um, you can judge for yourselves. This was written by myself a couple of months ago. Um, I think it's appeared on our website. Here we go. So I suffer from severe OCD, anxiety, and PTSD. So there you go. I've said it. Um, It's out. I can't take it back. And now you know as well. As our 
been a Valley Road podcast series um, gains momentum, there have been a number of satellite themes that have presented themselves. The obvious one is domestic violence, but really, when you look at the state of Kira McLaughlin leading up to her death, her mental health was in decline. In fact, she, like myself, had suffered from a suite of mental health issues for the majority of her life. I've actually been told by many health professionals that I've seen over the years that I'm a, I'm genetically sort of predisposed to mental illness. There are a number of people in my family who suffer, albeit to a lesser degree, some sort of mental health issue, um, and I guess I just carried on the same tradition. For me, it all started when I was eight. It's a funny story, actually. Not so much funny, ha-ha, funny, strange. It's funny, ha-ha, looking back on it, but... It wasn't funny at the time, put it that way. So I was riding my bike, um, you know, like a lot of eight-year-old boys used to do back then, um, in a spare paddock next to my house. So I was doing wheelies and jumps and all kinds of cool shit, but as fate would have it, I I came off and started bleeding everywhere, Um, which is, again, a a pretty natural byproduct of riding your bikes and doing wheelies and shit. as fate would have it, I came off and, and you know, started bleeding. And, and again, this was nothing new. I'm, I'm one of three boys and, and come from an extremely male-dominated environment. Um, you know, there wasn't a day that went by when I was growing up that one of us wasn't bleeding or bruised or injured in some way. Um, it, you know, that was mainly from jumping off roofs or into dams or, you know, wrestling with our big dog. Um but for some reason on this occasion, it was different. And the reason it was different was because the night before, I remembered watching an ad on TV about AIDS, as in acquired immune deficiency syndrome. And little did I know that short public health announcement would trigger in me a lifetime of eternal struggle. Internal struggle, I should say, not eternal struggle. Although it has been an eternal struggle, but internal struggle more specifically. When I came off my bike in that vacant paddock in the summer of 1994, some neurons connected, some hormones were released and some nerves started firing and just like that my life changed because I had suddenly contracted AIDS, well at least that's what I thought. I'd had a panic attack and I was thinking things like, how how will my mum and dad cope when I die? I'll never get married what's going to happen with my dog, should I give him away now, and this is all pretty heavy shit to deal with when you're eight, Um, in, in my mind the best way to deal with this though was to start twisting the dial of this, of this new gold rip curl watch that I'd gotten for my birthday, so one twist would mean I didn't have AIDS, two twists would mean I wasn't going to get it, and three twists would just be for, you know, luck and a bit of general well-being, (laughs) And so as as time went on, these preventative rituals got more complex and more time-consuming. And after about 18 months, it was taking me anywhere from 10 to 20 minutes just to leave my room. So twists of a watch, turning of a door handle, flicking of a light switch, the number of breaths between the bed and the door, these were all designed to divert my mind even for just a split second from the perceived terminal illness that I had. As I got older... Um, my OCD grew with me and started to become self-sabotaging. So by 14, I, I finally came to the conclusion that I didn't have AIDS, but rather something more sinister, and that was brain cancer. 
So my watch twisting hit an all-time high. I started underperforming in exams on purpose, thinking thinking that, you know, the rationale is if, if I was unsuccessful academically, then I wouldn't have cancer because, you know, I couldn't be that unlucky to have cancer and be a failure. So that's what I started to do. And it was at this point my parents intervened. Uh, there was a real obvious, you know, byproduct of, of what was going on. And while they didn't always pick up on the watch twisting and the walking weird and the light switching on and off and the hand washing, um, they certainly did pick up on it when I started failing exams. Um, and I was, you know, I was I was taken to see a psychologist and, and, and medicated, I guess. So so fast forward a year or two and I'm, and I'm off my meds and the OCD came back with a little bit of anxiety thrown in there just to make it interesting. And I'm, and I'm not going to bore you with the tales of every panic attack I had or, you know, hand washing marathon I went on, but let's just assume it was a shit ton. Anyway, I managed to finish school Got accepted into into um, into law, which I swapped for journalism um, after about two minutes because, yeah, needless to say, the law wasn't for me. Um, I was trying to think of something funny to say there about lawyers, but my, my brother's a lawyer and he's a, he's a really good bloke, so I don't want to disparage lawyers. So I, I continued on my merry uh, watch twisting and hand washing, pen tapping away until I joined the police. Um, And here's where shit, I guess, takes a bit of a dark turn because I reckon the majority of operational police in this country, possibly the world even, suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. The very nature of their work leads them to experience traumatic shit, so it stands to reason um, that would cause some degree of stress. I'm not going to go into the stuff that I've seen. Again, just assume the majority of it wasn't overly pleasant, but because of my existing mental health issues, I was prone to feel the effects of PTSD in a way that was you know, truly debilitating. I guess I want to take this opportunity to to debunk a few myths about PTSD. Firstly, it doesn't make you weak or sensitive or, you know, gay or any soft or any of that bullshit. PTSD is simply a reaction to some sort of stimulus that your mind picks up as being stressful and processes in a weird way. Secondly, PTSD manifests itself differently in everyone how i display it is different to the person next to me for instance so while they may drink themselves into oblivion every chance they get um i might go two or three days without saying a word so you know ptsd is the reason i'm one of the reasons i'm i'm no longer a police officer i i I didn't recognize it at the time but it but it is i left the job because i got what i thought was a was a better offer a better job offer um and it wasn't until i finished and and went back to my first career choice as a journalist um that the true nature of my ptsd surfaced i became extremely withdrawn i wouldn't speak for days I, i wouldn't drive i wouldn't exercise i wouldn't use my phone and i i deleted all my social media um you know, I, I, I drank, I ate absolute shit, I, I gained almost 20 kilos, and my mental health is something that I struggle with every day still, um, and, it, and it may not be obvious, but it but it is there. You know, the opportunity to work closely with Jamie and, and the Bean and Valley Road project means the world to me, and, it, and it's helping me close out some of the things from my past that needed to be shafted, essentially. Uh, the opportunity to tell Kira's story and provide some insights into her struggle is also a big part of my motivation. And, and I, st- I still take medication. It, it knocks me around sometimes. Um, I, have a, I have a tremendous amount of support from my family, my wife, my kids, my close friends. But, you know, there is a stigma around mental health, and I guarantee that nothing I say on this platform is going to change that. But it doesn't mean we can't try. So there you go. There's a little bit about my story. Hope you... Uh, 
enjoyed it. Sounds weird to say, but yeah, hope hope it hope it resonated with a few of you. Thanks again for the support, and um, you'll hear from us soon. See ya. Beenham Valley Road is a 610 Media production. This episode was written, recorded, and produced by myself, Tom Daunt, and Jamie Pultz. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review Beenham Valley Road. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and also read our weekly blogs at 610mediagroup.com. Thanks for listening, guys. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.